Welcome to the Good Neighbours podcast. This is a series on the UK and its relations with the EU and European countries after Brexit. We look at the EU-UK relationship, consider how the relationship compares with the EU's relations with its other neighbours, and discuss the UK's new bilateral relations in Europe. I'm Hussein Kassin, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and Changing Europe. And I'm Dr Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate on Negotiating the Future. Today, we're looking at how the UK's relationship with the EU compares with the relationships that the EU has with other European neighbours, and at how we got there. We're delighted to welcome two distinguished guests. Sieglinde Gestöhl, Professor of International Relations and Director of the Department of EU International Relations and Diplomacy Studies at the College of Europe in Bruges. Sieglinde is the author of many books on various aspects of the EU's external relations, including its trade policy and EU relations with its EU neighbours. She was an early user of the notion of external differentiation to compare those relationships. And Georg Rikeles, who worked closely with Michel Barnier in the European Commission's task forces. He was involved in the two sets of negotiations with the UK that structure the current relationship the UK has with the EU. Georg is now a fellow at the European Policy Centre, a leading think tank in Brussels. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll, I'll start with a big question, if that's okay, turning to you, perhaps, Siglinda. How, in general terms, uh, does the UK's relationship, based on the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement, compare with the EU's other relationships with its European neighbours? Well, thank you for the question. Well, I think that alongside the withdrawal agreement in 2019, both sides, the UK and the EU, had adopted a political declaration that aspired, and I'm going to quote this, to an ambitious, broad, deep, and flexible partnership across trade and economic cooperation. And if I remember correctly, as late as Christmas 2020, Prime Minister Johnson claims that there will be no non-tariff barriers to trade. Now, today, I mean, if you look at the TCA, uh, as a result of the negotiations, um, it is not very ambitious. And trade is not frictionless. There are still many non-tariff barriers to trade in place. Um, but of course, in the future, you know, the relationship could be built up. It could be filled with more substance since now there's a framework uh, in place um, to work with. Now, if you look at it from a more legal perspective, even though I'm not a lawyer, uh, all these agreements are association agreements. Like you look at the European Economic Area, Turkey's association with the EU, including a customs union, uh, Ukraine's or Moldova's, Georgia's associations with deep and comprehensive free trade areas, or some of the Swiss agreements, and also the future uh, association that is still under negotiation between the EU and Andorra, Monaco and San Marino. So they're association agreements with different levels of ambition regarding their scope. So what they actually cover in terms of policy fields, but also in terms of institutional governance arrangements. And that also kind of includes different degrees of you know, how important the acquis, the EU rules are in these relationships. The treaties define association agreements in Article 217, TFEU, as common features in our reciprocal rights and obligations, common action and special procedures. So they do have an institutional dimension because they're normally considered politically more important than just normal, let's say, trade agreements. Thank you very much, Sieglinde. Uh, just just a, a quick follow-up here. Could, could you, in a nutshell, could it could it all be about the different levels of access to the single market then? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. what, what has been uh, striking me over the years is that in the UK, but to some extent also in Switzerland, um, there seems to be a very poor understanding of what the difference is between access to the internal market of the EU and participation in the internal market of the EU. So, Access meaning it can be based on conditions that are better than in the World Trade Organization, um, based on a you know free trade agreement, based on a TCA, let's say. But participation in the internal market would rather mean that third countries are treated similar to EU member states, based on what some people call an integration agreement. Um, 
which contains the obligation for them to actually apply, uh, implement, incorporate in their domestic legal uh, order a certain predetermined selection of a key communautaire. And I think participation in the EA agreement in the internal market goes much further and that the British model wouldn't fit there. So because uh, of the red lines that have been put forward in the negotiations. If I'm, I'm sort of to pick up uh, somewhere, what I would say is that uh, the EU's ecosystem of, of rules that greatly facilitates trade. Uh, in the case of, uh, of, of Norway, of course, they're also in Schengen. Uh, they're closely associated uh, or, or inside EU programs and, and there are great advantages to, to all that. Uh, but at the same time, the, the, the cost, if you want, the price to pay for that is to be a rule taker. If there is a, an EU directive, it's an EU regulation, well, it has to be uh, transposed into the EA agreement and has to be applied in, in national uh, Norwegian law. When it comes to the UK, uh, that's an entirely different model. Uh, it was a, a choice uh, by, by the UK government uh, to, to, to stay out, to leave the single market. And what the UK has is, we'll probably get back to that point, but a relatively shallow uh, trade deal, uh, of course, uh, duty-free, quota-free, so there are no duties on, on goods that cross uh, the channel. But of course, we know in our model, modern economies, uh, trade is a lot more than just uh, the duties and the quotas. So, so if you look topic by topic, uh, whether it's uh, professional qualifications or services, or financial services, etc., it's it's a relatively uh, shallow uh, trade deal. This is complemented with, with cooperation in, in, in other areas. But again, uh, the UK uh, is not in, in, in Schengen uh, and never has been. So uh, in those areas also, it is uh, a shallower, less uh, deeply interconnected uh, relationship than, than, than what uh, Switzerland and, and Norway uh, currently have. That's great. I do wonder though, were these uh, were these different relationships the consequences of the consequence of a deliberate strategy on the EU's part? And uh, if not, what explains these differences? I mean, Georg, you, you touched upon the UK having a different ambition. So, I would not necessarily perceive you as a, as a deliberate strategy as such. But I think over time there have been some political legal principles and therefore constraints that have emerged and increasingly been consolidated on the EU side. And then there's also the aspect of path dependence. Of course, once you, that's how I said before, the European economic area is kind of a, a benchmark or a blueprint. So it's always there again, you know, against this background that later uh, partnerships are maybe compared. Um, but having said that, uh, when the EAA was conceived, let's say in the late, late 1980s, early 90s, the European Commission had already made it quite clear to the EFTA countries at the time that any future relations would be based on certain basic principles. At the time, the principles were the priority of community internal integration. You know, there was a lot of talk of widening versus deepening and so on. Uh, second, to preservation of its own decision-making autonomy. And then third, the maintenance or the achievement, let's say, of a balance of benefits and obligations. Um, these three principles have come up again and again over the years. You could also, with a view to the UK um, and maybe Switzerland, add um, you know, that there should be no cherry-picking. But cherry picking is not possible in the sense that you have to find a balance between what both sides want. For instance, if you take the case of Switzerland, uh, they were not keen on having the free movement of persons because they already had a high uh, immigration rate in their countries from EU citizens. Um, but the EU linked it in a package deal of several bilateral sectoral agreements and even linked it very strongly with a guillotine clause, meaning that if one of these agreements in that package would be rejected, for instance, in a referendum, then the whole package you know, would fall apart. Whereas other countries, let's say Turkey, um, would have liked to have free movement of workers. And as was actually foreseen a long time ago in, in the association, and it never happened. Or Ukraine might have liked to have free movement of persons, but the EU side didn't want. So you have to find a balance um, 
you know, that corresponds to the mutual interest of both sides, I think. And um, maybe as a last point, I remember that in 2014, in one of the council conclusions, it was clearly said that the EU uh, should have a consistent approach towards non-EU partners that participate in the external single market. So I think what is important is to see whether the internal there's a participation in the single market as a starting point, yes or no, and take that take it from there to see what's possible or what's feasible, desirable, and so on. I think there's been quite uh, a lot of evolution in in the EU's relationship with its its close uh, neighbors um, uh, over time, and 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 there's really a, a, something to to tell about uh, EU history in 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 this respect. And and sort of, I I would argue that if you look, say, if you take the EU Swiss relationship to start with. Uh, I think the EU, in its negotiation stance, in the negotiations of of these successive uh, agreements uh, that have come in sort of different waves, that that the EU uh, in 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 many ways was lacking a clear uh, strategy, a clear view of uh, where it was heading and how it wanted to organize uh, third country relationships. Uh, linked uh, to to the single market, and and I would argue, and I've argued this in a project syndicate uh, piece, uh, not least that, and I'm not then only sort of talking in 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 pecuniary terms, in terms of of the financial contribution, which has been very very low for Switzerland if it has been paid at all, but I, I'm talking also, of course, sticking to to what essentially are uh, necessary single market uh, disciplines. So the common interpretation of rules, uh, having uh, having uh, functioning uh, dispute settlement, uh, making sure that you have uh, associated with, uh, with, with, with trade uh, access or, or uh, well, open, open trade, that you also then have uh, similar systems for disciplines on state aid, et cetera, et cetera. So basically the equation didn't add up anymore so that's that's one part of of the story and then comes brexit uh and uh obviously a much bigger uh problem much more dramatic problem uh the political setting uh was obviously also uh much more dramatic in the sense that we tend to forget it now but the day after uh the brexit referendum you had uh nationalist leaders across europe that came out and say now it's our turn we're going to have a Frexit referendum. We're going to have a, a referendum in uh, in Netherlands and so on and so forth. So, so it was it was clear from the very beginning that the stakes were heightened. These these weren't simply negotiations you could enter into, and and see what would happen. So, so, so this is where my answer to your deliberate strategy uh, comes in. I think from the very beginning, from the first meetings uh, of the heads of state and government uh, in the summer of of 2016, it was very clear that there needed to be uh, some fundamental principles uh, laid down, uh, that there would need to be a common approach. uh, And and this is not something uh, one couldn't just play uh, uh, by the ear or 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 as it as it came along and and of course this you have in in the first in the very first documents where which talks about the fact that well what Singlind also uh, said uh, the four freedoms went together of course there are examples where they have been divided uh, in the past it was very clear from the beginning of the Brexit negotiations that the EU uh, would not uh, uh, approach the four freedoms of the single market. Uh, in any other way than as a package. Uh, it was, I mean, other elements were, were laid down, the EU27 interest, the fact that there would be no negotiation with no notification, and so on and so forth. But it was very clear uh, in terms of a signal that was sent that the UK would not be able to remain with one foot inside uh, and one foot uh, while being having another foot outside and sort of to cherry pick and, and take the best of the EU economic uh, model. It signaled that the EU uh, was taking a, a sort of a hardening view on how to work with third countries. Uh, we entered into a, a different uh, paradigm. But of course, having said that, everything wasn't worked out from the beginning. A lot, a lot of this was developed also as we uh, went uh, along. Uh, I think these sort of fundamental principles, these cornerstones proved uh, very important. But uh, But also how... 
uh, how the, the the relationship in the end ended up in the withdrawal agreement and uh, in the TCA was also, of course, very much uh, a a reflection of choices made by the UK uh, UK government. That's great. Um, you've you've both mentioned a couple of times no cherry picking and this having emerged as some some form of a challenge for the EU in its uh, managing or ensuring some form of consistency across its uh, various and quite wide-ranging relationships. Can you think of other forms of challenges or would these this this cherry picking and these balance and striking a balance between the rights and obligations here uh, be the central uh, challenges? Yes, um, I think it's certainly one of the core challenges. Somehow, I think there's a, a trade-off um, on the one hand. Well, let's first look at the European Union. Between um, the homogeneity of the internal market in particular, so, and, you know, a close alignment of neighbors uh, to its rules, which is, of course, interesting. And on the other hand, this um, differentiation or a risk of fragmentation uh, of the legal and also political space uh, if this would not happen. So to have different neighborhood schemes around it is, of course, much more cumbersome for the European Union to manage. Let's put it that way. So there's a certain trade-off, having them, letting them participate, um, but then also keeping up this homogeneity. And it's a bit the same, or a mirror image on the side of the third countries concerned. So on the one hand, um, they would like to have access or participation in the internal market for the economic benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, this also comes with costs uh, in terms of um, not having access or to the decision-making um, when these rules are being made that they are then supposed to take over or and apply and implement as well. Um, so you could call it a, a trade-off or the need to find an acceptable balance. And I think what is acceptable to one country might not be acceptable to another country. And I think uh, when it comes to these institutional questions, so linked to governance and to you know what extent they can take part or not, the EU has for more than 10 years um, repeated again and again what the institutional issues are if you have an agreement that is based on EU rules, so participation in the internal market. And it's how do you keep up this agreement? I mean, how do, how do you keep it up to date in light of relevant new legal acts from the EU? How do you monitor the partner's compliance? So there's a surveillance question. How do you ensure the uniform interpretation of agreements in line with the key from which they are actually originally derived, if it's EU law? So then the question of the Court of Justice of the European Union comes in. And finally, how do you settle disputes with partners? So these four questions have been there for a long time and across uh, different partnerships. And I, I just this week look at, looked at the latest um, council conclusion, which are from 21st of June uh, on the Western neighbors of the European Union. And uh, I just found it again, uh, this time with regard to the ongoing negotiations of association agreements with Andorra, Monaco and San Marino, where the council clearly stated that the future agreement must be based on maintaining the good functioning and homogeneity of the internal market and legal certainty. And that these association agreements, which might be concluded by the end of next year, should uh, include institutional mechanisms for consultation between the parties to ensure the good functioning, uh, to ensure the dynamic takeover of the acquis by the three countries, provide uniform application and consistent interpretation of the provisions, and include a fair, effective, and efficient dispute settlement mechanism. And maybe as a last thought, regarding the UK, which has an agreement which is at the moment, at least not based on a key because it was rejected. I sometimes have the feeling that this whole discussion about um, a level playing field substitutes for homogeneity. So you have to at least somehow make sure, in particular if there might be a certain mistrust between the partners, that you know what they commit to is actually done, even if it's not a key based. Uh, and, it, you know, we don't talk about the homogeneity of the internal market, which is extended to a third country, such as the UK, but we still, we talk about level playing field because uh, the UK is big and it's next door and it's an ex-member of the EU. 
it's a broad question you're asking. We're sort of taking first the EU advantage point. I think the the the, the three relationships, the challenges linked to the three relation, relations were are of entirely different orders. So the UK departure, as I as I said, was ultimately it was an existential threat to the union, existential challenge, and it was dealt with as such. The EU-Swiss uh, relationship uh, is uh, has been an irritant. Uh, the EU has tried to mend it. The institutional framework agreement that Siglinda just described, struck in 2018 uh, after five years of negotiation, was sort of a last ga- ga- gasp attempt to put relations on a on sustainable footing and, and pave way for further market uh, access. And and then. The Swiss left the table, and that's sort of the end of the road of that. But it's not a problem for the EU. It's it's going to be a growing problem for the Switzerland, but it's not a, a big headache for, for the EU. Jörg, thanks very much. I'm, I'm going to ask you both now about um, about the EU-UK negotiations. I mean, we've already talked a bit about this, and um, and I, I want to um, I want to yeah, carry on discussing the trade and cooperation agreement in particular. But just to sort of step back, because one 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 dimension which is clearly different about the UK's relationship with the with the EU is a withdrawal agreement. It was a member state, it decided to leave and there had to be a withdrawal agreement. And, and in a way, it's the withdrawal agreement that's fundamental. I just wondered if you could um if you could tell us, Gil, because how did the how did those on the EU side view those negotiations? You said existential, but what were the what were the issues that that, that arose? And because we know what's happened with the Northern Ireland protocol, I want to ask you whether it was clear to you that there was going to be an implementation problem as you were negotiating um, this um, this treaty. Well, gosh, those are those are big questions. But maybe the the priorities first. I think how I often uh, sum it up is to say that uh, I think that the union uh, as a whole had three main objectives throughout these two negotiations: the withdrawal uh, agreement and 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 the TCA. Uh, and and I usually say priority number one was um, the Ireland Northern Ireland uh, question. Uh, obviously, because uh, peace, stability was at stake. But when I mentioned that as priority number one, it's obviously because it stands for something bigger. It had a very big political importance, significance. Uh, and, and the political significance for the union was to say that when a member state is facing an existential threat or challenge, uh, a difficult situation, then, then the solidarity of all 27 come come into play. And I think that was entirely dominating logic uh, in the EU's approach to dual negotiations and to this whole idea that first and foremost, the EU wanted uh, an orderly uh, withdrawal. Then I would say that the second main objective uh, uh, of the EU could be summed up in terms of the single market. Uh, we wanted to keep the single market uh, complete uh, knows uh, cherry picking, as as Singlinda, Singlinda uh, said, and and that was also stands for something bigger. Uh, if you start giving advantages uh, to uh, departing members or some uh, uh, countries outside the EU that members don't get, well, basically you are destroying the very rationale for being part of. Of, of the union being part of, of that club. Uh, so that's, that's, that was very clear. And then I say that the third, and, and I really say that they were in a sense in, in that order, the third main objective was uh, to have good relations with the UK. I think one already at the time in 2016, of course now in the context of war, one thinks, thinks the world around us is even more challenging, uh, clearly. But back then it was also the world of, of Trump, uh, the world of strongman politics, of zero-sum games. So from it was clearly a negotiation objective uh, throughout these negotiations, withdrawal and, um, and, and future relations, to, to lay the ground for good, friendly, close, uh, neighbourly relations with, with the UK across a number of areas, from the economy to, to, to security. And I think, of course, uh, one can very well argue that one didn't succeed with that. Uh, but I think that intention was there and, and, and one tried to, to stick to it, to work on it, to find solutions throughout the negotiations, despite the fact that, of course, it, politically it was very, very difficult. When it comes to your second question, Hussein, uh, on the Northern um, Ireland Protocol, well, uh, we knew from the beginning uh, that uh, this was going to be very difficult, uh, not necessarily because uh, 
everyone or anyone actually in 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 the 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 commission in the member states in the council in the parliament from day one understood the the, the full scale of the difficulties quite on the contrary uh, a lot of of this was developed understood analyzed as as we went along with with the help obviously of uh, Ireland as as a member state and 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 as a as a party to the good friday agreement but of course also in the discussions and and and, and negotiations with with the um, with the UK, but what what I I'd like to sort of I, I can seize the occasion to say I see a little bit of revisionism around this. Uh, I was listening uh, uh, the other day to witness account I think it was from David Davis uh, in the context of the project you have of the UK in a changing Europe, and he was sort of uh, presenting this issue of of uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol as an issue of uh, that to sort of uh, the EU discovered very late and, and hadn't paid attention to at the time of uh, the beginning of the negotiations in, uh, in, in the spring of uh, 2017. Quite the contrary, I think from, from the, the very beginning, it was clear that this was going to be hugely political, uh, very technical and, and be the one of the most fundamental challenge, if not the, the most fundamental challenge. So, so it was decided when we put together negotiations, when we agreed with the, with the UK uh, on, 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 on the different tables of negotiation, etc., that it would follow a specific track, that it would be done at deputy chief uh, negotiator level at the level of Sabine Veyan. So, so this was definitely something we knew would be complicated from the beginning. I think we had quite good discussions at moments at technical levels done but of course at political level one one saw that 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 wasn't necessarily the approach that was taken so so, so there were also moments that that dialogue the way it should have been and it's still the case is uh, did not take place is not taking place if the uk wanted to uh, be outside the single market and the customs union if one wanted to have no hard border uh, on the island of ireland and there was also the wish to have no custom checks and controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, well, one of those three had to, to give. Unfortunately, there was a lot of wishful thinking uh, in, in the political discussions around this. Uh, one tried to, to work through them, to de-dramatize, etc. But it, indeed, uh, the short answer to your question, Hussein, is that all along, uh, we knew that that this was going to be very challenging and, and one sought to, to find a way uh, through. Uh, but but uh, yeah, the rest is history. Thanks. Thanks very much, Georg. Sieglinde, I just wondered how, as an observer of the different forms of relationship that the EU has with its with its neighbours, how you how you see the withdrawal agreement as a as you know as a sort of fact, as an as, a, as an issue in in shaping the formal um, relationship. Does it really differentiate the UK from um, other neighbours? Well, it was the first time uh, that a EU member state left the European Union, so obviously. Um that comparable with other cases, and it also sets a precedent to some extent. And, and as Georg said, I think there were some concerns on the EU side that um, it shouldn't create any incentives for Eurosceptical member states or rather Eurosceptical governments <laughs> to maybe also withdraw and, and, and find it attractive to leave the European Union. So everybody was, of course, a bit watching oh, how this would unfold and what the implications would be for the UK's economy and, and whatever comes afterwards. Of course, we have also the pandemic and now we have the war in Ukraine. So it's a bit difficult to say what the consequences um, were of Brexit itself. I find it also quite interesting, um, like Georg said, that Northern Ireland was uh, the first priority of the EU, because my perception on the UK side was that this didn't really seem to be a priority of the British government, if I may say so, or at least it was entering the process very late. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it was kept out because, uh, you know, they wanted to sort out other things first. But my perception was also talking to colleagues in, in Belfast that, you know, this was not a priority of the, of the UK government. But, but looking at the trade agreement uh, now, um, we've already talked a bit about how, how thin it is compared to other, um, other agreements. Um, but Gil, we're, we're all familiar with uh, Michelle Barnier's famous staircase, which she presented to the European Council in December 2017, if I'm not, not mistaken. Can you tell us how that diagram came about and what the motivation was for it? Ah, that's that's an interesting uh, question. I, I think Barnier more or less tells the story in his book, but, but um, I think 
the background was that uh, Barnier had something at, on his mind for weeks and weeks that he he sort of kept on uh, asking from us uh, in in the task force. He said that he really wanted us to be able to map uh, the UK red lines that sort of so sort of laid down by by the May government onto a description of the different existing uh, models for for the use. Uh, external uh, economic relationships. So basically everything that we've been discussing, EA, uh, Customs Union, Turkey, Switzerland, and so on and so forth. And, and he wanted us to be able to show this in, a, in, a, in, in, in something that was explainable for, for when he went around to, I don't know, speak in public conferences or speak to members of parliament or, or government ministers, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and so this is something he, 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 he really... Uh, well, he was constantly on our back asking us for, 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 for something, a product of that kind. Thank you very much, Georg. Zieglinde, have you seen and heard of the staircase? <laughs> yes, of course. I've seen it many times. It's really famous. And it's very, it has been very efficient to visualize uh, the options, in a sense. Yeah, the, the actual negotiations uh, proved difficult, uh, even though the, the vision of the Johnson government as presented in the February. But Johnson's proposal was still pro- problematic for the EU. I mean, why was that? Perhaps, Georg, you can give us some indications on why, even though a very thin deal remained problematic for the EU. Well, I, I think uh, once we had reached sufficient progress in the negotiations in the, the, the autumn of 2017, we started, uh, well, first internally amongst the 27, but then also with the UK to start having the first discussions on what the future relationship uh, would look like. And that was uh, the, the sort of the work stream that uh, led to the, the, to the political declaration, uh, setting out ideas uh, or, or common viewpoints on, on, on what kind of future relation uh, the EU and K and UK would would want uh, together, and and I think obviously there was one withdrawal agreement, one protocol with Theresa May. <coughs> there was also a different one with with Johnson. And similarly for the political declaration, when Johnson came to government, uh, there was a bit, quite a bit of renegotiation of of the political declaration. But one still agreed on the common vision of of what the future would be. So, so, so there was supposed to be a good basis for for the negotiation on the of the future uh, uh, relationship. But of course, I think if I am to to say it a little bit bluntly, uh, I think what made it uh, very difficult for those during those uh, was it 10, 11 months the TCA negotiated uh, negotiations lasted was that Johnson and his team, David Frost and his team, came in with a much more uh, radical agenda when it comes to the politics of Brexit, a much more radical agenda when it came to the economic choices linked to Brexit. And I would say they came in with a much more radical uh, negotiation stance also when it came to came to the, the strategy or the tactics of negotiation. This very, well, I would say particular idea of what sovereignty is uh, that doesn't necessarily square well in my view with with the world we live in today where there are a lot of inter- interdependencies well that was the number one objective to 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 take back uh, control as as fully as as possible so a radical political agenda a radical uh, economic choices and and also then security choices linked to that and and finally the third reason uh, why it was so difficult they had a very radical i would say uh, negotiation tactic uh, stance. I think uh, the team uh, uh, in, in, in number 10, around Johnson, Dominic Cummings, uh, David Frost and others, they really saw these negotiations as a zero-sum game. So, so it was all about them trying to win something and, 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 and then in, imposing losses on the union. Or if that was not the case, if uh, the union, the EU obtained something in one area, that would necessarily mean uh, a less good result for 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 the UK. We probably didn't understand it from the beginning of the TCA uh, negotiations. I think we started really understanding it in the spring of 
2020, how 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 sort of radical uh, the the negotiation stance from from Downing Street was. So I think uh, for for those three reasons, the radical politics behind of of Johnson's Brexit, economic consequences they were willing to take on that, and and how they saw international negotiations, international relations, made this, yes, absolutely a very, very complicated, fraught, drawn out, tense uh, negotiations over the, over the months it, uh, it lasted. There was one point where David Frost said that uh, as, as the UK chief negotiator, there was nothing in the UK's proposal that couldn't be found in other agreements that the EU had with third countries, including CETA, and the EU refused to accept that argument. Why, why was that? You, you will look at what, what the interests of different uh, economic sectors are or different member star, states are in the EU, offensive and defensive interests, and make you up your mind on the basis of that. So it's not just because David Frost or his teams uh, have found something, uh, let's say, in, in, in EU Canada uh, regarding portfolio managers that the EU will say, oh, of course, yes, if we, if we entered into this with Canada, of course, UK has to get it too. Or if if Frost team managed to find something on mutual recognition uh, with Australia, or some so, or some other third country partner, that that would automatically be in the EU's uh, interest. So 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 we started off with quite 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 far apart, with quite difficult conversations around this, where we had to do uh, that that explaining uh, or, or or make those viewpoints clear from the EU side to the UK, but also publicly in 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 the debate. Uh, it was very much uh, uh, a negotiation that also happened in the in the public uh, sphere. So, so you will still find traces or, or very clear elements of this in in Barnier's speeches. They were never uh, coincidences. They were, these were sort of set pieces prepared uh, to to come at different moments to 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 sort of to explain our negotiation uh, uh, stance. If I remember it correctly, it was also in 2020 that the UK still wanted to have. Well, some kind of Canada-style free trade agreement with uh, areas, other areas of cooperation covered in separate treaties, each with their own governance arrangements. And I think that was something where the EU had really learned its lessons from the Swiss case, saying no, uh, it will be one agreement with one governance arrangement <laughs> and not separate treaties. I think that's also uh, quite interesting to observe. One question. One other question I've got for you about the TCA is about the sort of the mechanisms you introduced. And, but there are there are um, it seems to me novelties. There's the level playing field um, commitment. There's uh, committee structures. There's there's a rebalancing mechanism. I wondered to what extent you saw those as being sort of distinctive with respect to the TCA. And it would be good to hear your hear your um, views first. Somebody who was involved in the negotiations, but Siglinda is an observer of many of these um, agreements. It'd be really interesting to hear your your comments also. One of the most striking differences for me is that all the other arrangements, be it Switzerland, uh, Ukraine, European Economic Area, what what have you, their main objective is to, or the main layout is to converge, to come closer to EU rules. Whereas in the case of the UK, it seems to be the opposite. So how, you know, this taking back control um, that the British government wants to diverge from EU rules. And, and it's impossible to say to what extent it will diverge in the near or distant future. So we have a very different logic behind uh, let's say the TCA or the British model and, and all, all the other models when it comes to convergence versus divergence. And of course, we also have as a result um, the fact that the other models are based on a key and the British model is not as it stands now, except for Northern Ireland as, as a very special case, which was about basically squaring the circle um, given the political uh, situation. You, you, you're talking about something completely different when you are starting from the same standards. Uh, uh, and, and it's about managing divergence than when you are starting very far apart and you're creating some more, uh, some more uh, convergence. So that was why, uh, at least the way we saw it, level playing field um, for these negotiations was an entirely different chapter. Uh, to 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 what you would see in in traditional uh, FTAs and and uh, uh, 
uh, what what we wanted from the EU side, uh, we I think on the basis of of the political declaration, but also on the basis of wishes from member states that went with uh, beyond, we we wanted uh, a very be strong, uh, so to say, bulletproof, enforceable arrangements that would be to some extent, well, to a large extent, based on the, the common body of, of norms and standards that would be uh, derived from the acquis uh, when uh, the UK left. Uh, we wanted to have the possibility for those standards to, 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 to increase over time, so to be some form of ratchet mechanism. Uh, and of course, state aid was also uh, a complicated discussion from the EU point of view. One wanted uh, a, a, a sort of an EU-style state aid regime and not uh, a WTO-style uh, subsidy uh, disciplines framework, which is, 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 well, there are significant differences, whether it's ex-ante control, ex-post, etc., etc. Of course, this was a negotiation and the UK starting point was very difficult, different uh, in, in the context of what we described earlier, the, the political imperative of taking back control of or putting distance between uh, the EU and UK. Uh, but we were, of course, very mindful that the, the, the objective of the UK uh, or the objective of Brexit itself was very much, and, and not only in rhetoric, but in reality, to diverse. So, so it was a, a hugely complicated area that then would, would we understood, go all the way to the end of the, the negotiations. There's many, many dimensions to, to the level playing field uh, discussion. Uh, and I think we could spend a whole podcast on it. But, but I think really politically what, what Siglinde is saying, divergence logic versus convergence in, in, other, uh, in other contexts makes, uh, makes a huge difference. Again, uh, taking a step, uh, a broader view again um, uh, from the UK-EU uh, relationship and the negotiations per se, you, you were one of the first scholars to apply the concept of external differentiation to understanding the relations that the EU has with its neighbours. And uh, one to the, of the first to apply it to Brexit. I mean, could you please maybe tell us what the concept is and uh, why you find it useful? Well, there are different definitions out there, of course. So uh, I think in a nutshell, I kind of like the definition given in the book of 2013 by Leuven, Riedberger and Schimmelfennig. It's very short. And they say external differentiated integration occurs when non-member states adopt EU rules. So of course, now in the British case with the TCA, we're no longer adopting EU rules. <laughs> but I mean, the whole process has been a struggle uh, exactly about this. And of course, the the concept of differentiation started within the European Union, internal differentiation among EU member states. Just think of the UK opt-outs, for example, uh, the monetary union, Schengen, you know, who participates, who doesn't participate. Uh, and it then has basically also been uh, applied to the EU's external relations. But I think another important um, point I would like to make um, is that this is not new in the sense that we had this discussion all over already in the 1990s um, when enlargements to the north and then later to the east uh, were kind of imminent. Uh, there have been lots of concepts such as multi-speed Europe, variable geometry, concentric circles, uh, core Europe or affiliate membership, etc., etc. go on and on and on. And it's all coming back now when we talk about external differentiation Thanks. If, if I could ask, uh, ask you both a couple of questions about beyond Brexit. I mean, the first is, do you think that the experience of Brexit has affected the way that the EU approaches its relations with its European neighbours? Do you think there's been a, a change? Is there evidence of that? And if there hasn't been, should there be? My answer would be yes. <laughs> I think it has certainly, Brexit has certainly triggered much more reflection on, on what the opportunities and challenges are of the EU's relations with its neighbourhood. Um, and the EU has now maybe a clearer picture of what is feasible, um, for example, or what is not feasible. Again, the example that the Swiss model is outdated and will not be replicated because it's not sustainable in the long run. But also the third countries, the neighboring countries themselves, have learned uh, you know, what they could expect, what the options are. And right now, uh, after the membership bits of Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, However, we are also back to the widening versus deepening debate we had 30 years ago and the quest for new models. And there have been suggestions coming up from 
affiliate membership to political community, et cetera, et cetera. So we're kind of a little bit reinventing the wheel because we're still struggling with the same old uh, questions. Hugh, do you share that view? I, I, I very much uh, do. I think uh, absolutely the context where we're in now and, and with Ukraine or, or, or other uh, candidate countries um, processes now uh, has pushed us uh, back to the drawing board. Uh, there are some, some fundamental reflections needed, uh, very likely linked uh, to, uh, to treaty change. Uh, so, so I would agree with that. But at the same time, I would say that the experience of Brexit and the whole process uh, of it has, has, has really uh, provided for an aggiornamento of uh, the EU's understanding and logic. So I, I think really it was something that was needed in a way uh, I think the EU positions has have hardened. Uh, there is uh, a, a clearer, uh, clearer views, uh, in a way more self-confidence because some fundamental principles have been pinned down. So I think uh, this doesn't mean that you will not have differentiated choices in the future, but I, I think they will not be made uh, in the dark. I think uh, they, they will be made on the basis of, of, of cornerstones uh, that have very much been uh, established uh, in the debate now. Of course, there are new elements that will come in. Uh, I think obviously Ukraine is, is an example of, of that now with, 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 uh, with sort of the, both the, the, the political and, and, and moral and also security uh, imperative linked to the, to, to, to the war. But, but still, I think there are some, some new foundational stones that, that either, either were established or, or uncovered in the context of Brexit, absolutely. My final question is, where do you think we're going to go from here? Because there, I mean, there are various models. Uh, Martin Westlake has, has, got, has got a book sort of looking at those that are actual real. Um, there's Macron's idea of a European political community, which, um, which Boris Johnson claims he also coined. Um, where, where, would, where would you imagine we, we will be in 10 years' time? Will there be a closer relationship? Um, has Ukraine got anything to do with that? What, what, what do you think? Unfortunately, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> uh, I think there might be a closer relationship, even though it's going to take time. Uh, it also depends on what kind of government is in power in the UK, maybe. <laughs> uh, but the real question really is, what does the UK want? I mean, I, I, it took a long time to figure it out to get to the TCA, but we're still not done. And and I think, yeah. And then also very different views in different uh, parts of the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and so on. I mean, what does the UK want? I think that's one of the questions that the UK has to answer and then see what can be negotiated and added on top of what is already there as a basis with the European Union. The European Union has made it very clear what's on offer and that you cannot have the cake and eat it. What do you think? I, I don't have a crystal ball either, but I, so I don't know where we'll end up. But I think there are two fundamental dynamics at play here uh, that are, are, are slightly different. Uh, one, obviously, is, is the whole Ukraine question now and, and the question of enlargement. And the other I would say is is a question of the relationship with the UK. In terms of the first one, uh, enlarging the union is 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 complicated, uh, but there is uh, in a way a political uh, imperative to go in that direction. But I don't think there's neither at for this moment for the moment in time an absorption capacity required in the UK, but neither at the EU level. So I think what one needs to do is to prepare. The institutions and the union for a bigger union, and that requires treaty change. Uh, I don't know where this whole idea of uh, political uh, community would go. I would actually see something uh, different in a way, where uh, in the context of the enlargement, uh, sort of an Article 49 bis, there is a stage in the middle where uh, uh, a country adhering to the union uh, in the first stage uh, becomes part of the single market and all that it means. So, of course, the full ecosystem, the, the application of the court of justice, but also participate in, in decision making, etc., linked to that, but maybe not then the full 
political dimension, uh, not every aspect of, of what the union uh, entails. I think that would be a very attractive proposition to, to some of the candidate countries now. Uh, and, and But of course, it would require treaty change. But it, I, I think making it clear that full membership is attainable, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a process with an intermediate step uh, and, and it goes through the economy. I think that makes uh, a lot of uh, sense. So that's, that's one dynamic I see, the question of how do you solve the question of enlargement today. When it comes to the UK, of course, the, the relationship is extremely difficult today. There is no trust. Uh, there's no trust because there's a perception, and I think for good reasons in Brussels and European capitals, that this has not been managed in good faith from, from, from London. What I see is that we are in a, and that everybody sees, of course, we are in a very uh, or dramatically changed economic environment today. Yeah? A, a new Jew economy, uh, potentially uh, very dire economic outlook internally, uh, but but uh, and also an, a new area of sort of economic security with, with great stress on, on, on energy security, supply chains, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think really what we are witnessing is a suboptimal uh, cooperation framework between the EU and UK. It's suboptimal at political level, but also at, at a technical legal level between the EU and UK in this radically changing geo-economy. What would be in an ideal world if we can still be allowed to, to think in, in those terms when it comes to the EU-UK relationship? I don't think that necessarily, uh, if one were to do something, it would have been about reopening the TCA, TCA. I think what one would want is to put in place some kind of uh, uh, an EU-UK trade and technology council, uh, like the one the, the EU currently has with, with the US. Uh, I'm not saying it would be, have to be exactly the 10 same working groups, but I think there are uh, some, uh, some very clear areas where one would want to work much more closely uh, together. And not only export controls I mentioned, but of course, screening of dependencies, uh, support on supply chains, uh, joint action on green and digital uh, technologies. Uh, there are further dimensions, financial stability, uh, energy is key. I mentioned uh, broader security questions. So, so, so I think uh, this uh, is 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 sort of the, the the positive agenda that potentially could be there. But for the time being, uh, the the politics really stand in the in the in the way of that. Siglinda, Georg, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for sharing your insights and experience with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Good Neighbours. Mm-hmm.